As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. I would like to honour Mr. Petrovsky, who was the man who Anna killed. We had a steel box from Bunnings in which we locked the knives, all the sharp objects. Anna was in a state. Mum thinks she wasn't using ice at that time. She might have been drunk. She was agitated, let's put it that way. 
She looks fragile, but she's very strong. And she was screaming at the top of her lungs, I want to kill myself. And he was holding back the knife. I rang her doctor that we totally respect, who's been her doctor since she was 15, and said, what should we do, Dr. Deb? I said, can you hear her screaming? She said, you'll just have to call the police. I said, I don't want to call the police. They shoot mentally ill people. She wanted him to, to buy her cigarettes. He had been dishing out to her a lot of money at this stage, and he refused. He said he'd get him the next day but I'm not doing it now at 10 o'clock at night. According to the reports, she asked to, to see the money in the wallet. He showed her the money and, according to the court reports, she snatched the money and went into a rage. And the first thing that she did apparently was punch him so that he fell down unconscious. Melbourne woman murders man for cigarettes. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. There's thousands and thousands of families all over Australia going through the exact same thing we did. Failed by the system, abandoned and there's no support for them and they're desperate. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash pod and leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I dug up a photo album and I washed it off and said, look, look, look what I found. And I said, the family would be so pleased to get this. And he said, throw it back in the mud. He said, all of the family have been killed. Very often on Australian True Crime, one of us will be passionate about a guest that the other doesn't really know much about. It's one of the great joys of the show that we're constantly introducing each other to amazing stories and guests that we've stumbled upon. Normally, of course, we do the interviews together. Or at the very least, we get to interview our own finds. But of course, these are not normal times. So, long story short... I recently found myself firing up the Zoom to speak to a former New South Wales policeman by the name of Gary Raymond. And I really had very little idea why. I knew that Emily really wanted to talk to him, but she couldn't make it. And I had literally less than five minutes to Google him. In that time, I found a website that had lots of information about Gary and his incredibly impressive career. But I was surprised, I guess is the word, to realise that it was the Christian Police Fellowship website. Who even knew there was such a thing? 
I have to say that what happened over the next hour was exactly the conversation I needed, though, on so many levels. I hope it's as perfect for you as it was for me. Yeah, well, when I came to Christ in 1979, the first thing I wanted to do was try and find other Christian police officers for, I guess, to help grow and uh, to support one another. So I found a couple of blokes and then we started the Christian Police Fellowship from then. That was uh, four years ago now. But the first Christian Police Fellowship was in London in the 1800s, a lady called Catherine Gurney, a very old lady. And she walked up to a police officer and and said, God loves you and uh, he's going to bless your soul. And this cop turned around and said, Cops, have we got a soul, have we? And that touched her heart, broke her heart, because she thought he's a cop, that because of the job he's doing on the front line, didn't even think he had a soul. And uh, so she she then started getting Christian cops together, and that's how it started worldwide, the Christian Police Association. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that doesn't surprise me. It must feel sometimes soulless. Just yesterday I had the privilege of, listening in because I was recording someone else's interview and it was with a a lady whose husband had taken his own life as a policeman and we know that's a really common story and that's got to be part of it hasn't it to to lose touch with your spirituality has got to be a big part of that oh that's right I mean that's the reason I survived was in 1 Peter and it says there God gives a command like an order in the police uh, I gave orders to younger constables and and the bosses gave orders to me. And you, you it's actually uh, an offence under the Police Regulation Act to disobey a reasonable direction from a senior officer. In 1 Peter, God says, cast all of your cares upon him as he then cares for you. Now, that's an order. It doesn't say if you feel like it or if, you, if it's a last resort. Or <laughs> God's ordering us, he says, you will cast all of your cares upon me as I care for you. So that's what's got me through is obeying the orders from God. So you're saying you give your stress, you you were able to give your stress and your heartache and your cares, which sounds like a word not powerful enough to cover what you dealt with in policing, but we understand what that means. You gave that to God and that alleviated it for you. Yeah, just hand it over and say um, it means that I don't care about anybody because if I cared about somebody, then I'm disobeying God's orders because he says cast all, A-double-L, your cares upon me. I can love you. I can minister to you. I can help you practically and, you know, help you with the word and all of that sort of stuff. But the minute I care for you and I'm burdened by you, I'm disobeying the orders. No, it makes sense to me because I'm Buddhist and Buddha had some teachings that firstly were very, very similar to those of Jesus. But also when you first hear them or read them, you think, oh, that's a bit crook. Like he's saying, don't be attached to other people. But similarly, it's about, yeah, you can love people, but don't be attached to them. Don't be burdened by them. Yeah. You know, another time in Matthew, it says there, uh, Jesus actually, these words, he said, he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy loaded, and I will give you rest. And so that's another order where God says, 
you know, if you're weary and heavy laden or heavy loaded, then I'm ordering you come to Jesus and he'll give you a rest. So many police, though, would say, I think, would say it's really hard to believe in God when I'm seeing such evil, I'm seeing so much evil. And I just cast my eye down the list of cases that you worked on in your career and I see, for example, the Anita Cobby case. And I see a case there where just a woman was walking home and we've seen so many similar cases, unfortunately, recently, but this one even still today stands out for the brutality. A woman was walking home from the train station and a car full of young men kidnapped her and brutalised her for hours. Mm. A lot of people will say, how can you believe in God when you're seeing that level of godlessness in your work? Yeah, it looks spot on, but um, we read again, from a Christian point of view, and I suppose uh, Buddhists believe much the same, is that at one stage we read that Adam and Eve, who are real people, dismissed God and cut him off. And and it was then, it says, they call it the fall, the whole world started. Before that it was perfect, no death, no suffering. It was a perfect world under God's love and, and, and sort of nurture. And they cut him off and it just... It's like cutting a baby off, in, you know, in the womb, you know, if they've got no nourishment, poor things die. But so, and then, so that's the first thing, that God didn't cause this, we did. We were the ones that divorced him. He's never divorced us. Secondly, it says that God gave us a conscience that we know what's right and wrong. Now, we can override that and say, well, stealing, for example, if we take something that doesn't belong to us or use something that doesn't belong to us, you know, without permission, we know we're looking to make sure no one catches us because in here we know that it's wrong. So those stinking rotten offenders, God, the Holy Spirit, would have said to them, not touch this girl. Yeah. If they disobeyed him, and look at the consequences. We hear a lot about how rough and tumble a police station is. Yeah. So how did this go down? Did you talk like this at work? Absolutely. Anyone in the world wonders why it's a mess is police officers because, uh, and I guess to Ambos and firemen, but police in particular because they are dealing with a mess of humanity, Mm. particularly what humans can do. And you mentioned Anita Cobby. That was horrific what they did to that young lady. And uh, just on that for a moment, uh, not many people know that she'd normally get off the train, ring her dad on the public phone in those days, and he'd come and pick her up. But the two public phones on the station had been vandalised for the money in the steel box and not working. So she couldn't get in touch with dad, didn't have mobiles in those days. Mm. So she decided to walk home down Newton Road and, and these these five had planned to abduct a, a, a lady to do two things, one, to sexually molest her and abuse her and, secondly, to actually steal the money from her purse, whoever she was. So they pre-planned to do this. Mm. Coming back to that question, what I used to do is I remember, you know, being a Christian bloke, but... Keep in mind that I wasn't a Christian for a few years and so the guy saw me as a rough and tumble, you know, party boy, 
drink the smoke cigarettes and then go out partying, you know, particularly with nurses' parties. Police were sort of this attraction <laughs> with the nurses, as you might imagine. But yeah. so we went wild. And then when I became a Christian, my behaviour changed. And I know that when you become a, a Buddhist too, your behaviour changes. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> fine. It has to. Yeah. But with mine, um, they noticed the difference. And and they'd say, uh, like, for example, I've got a few shells lined up. Are you coming out tonight? I'd say, no, mate, no, not, not tonight. I'm going to church. What? You what? <laughs> Why are you doing that? Well, you know, I've come to realise that I've offended God, mate, and uh, that offence is, is, is quite serious. So I've come to Jesus and thanked him for dying on the cross for me and, and I'm going to try and live the life that he would want me to live and I don't do that anymore. And they gained a respect for me. Of course, being a very frontline cop, and I'm an ex-boxer, so I could handle myself very well. They relied on me when things got tough on the streets. So I stepped in and protected a lot of them because I had the skills. Mm. So I had a, a really, they admired me uh, anyway. And I remember one time uh, I was working with a new detective. We got in the car and he said, uh, oh, he said, I've heard you're one of these committed Christians, are you? I said, yeah, mate, what about you? He said, no, nah, never, never. Oh, okay. And he said, so don't bring that bullshit on the mail. I said, mate, you talk to God about that, not Gary. Get the right G. <laughs> I said, I'm not talking for God. He can talk for himself, you know. Yeah. About six months later, the conversation from him came up and uh, I said, oh, have you fell in love with Jesus yet, mate? He said, no, goes. He said, I'm sort of sitting on the fence. I shut my mouth because, you know, God said you can't sit on the fence. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no fence sitting. So I shut my mouth. I thought it's God's job, not Gary's job. <laughs> Six months after that, he walked up behind me and dug me in the ribs with his elbow. Whack! I went, oh, what was that? He said, I'm one of you now. He said, I surrendered him and love Jesus now and thank him for dying on the cross to forgive what I've done. And... Uh, so he said, mate, thank you very much for letting God do his work and you shutting your mouth. <laughs> so I always ask them, you know, look, if, if you want to talk about God and what Jesus did on the cross for you, ask me. So apart from that, we go out lock up crooks. And so it was always the invitation uh, for them. The Bible says that God stirs up the inquiry. Of, he said, if you seek me, you'll find me. So he stirs up the ability for us to look for him. Yeah. Back to the Anita Cobby case, when you grew to learn more about those offenders, was it one of those cases, we've spoken about this a bit on this show, where the rest of the country just has the deepest hate for these people and is literally baying for their blood and saying, bring back corporal punishment and all that. Did were you able to feel compassion for them? Can you tell us a bit about the offenders? Yeah, look, firstly, they all came from um, pretty awful backgrounds, a fair bit of neglect and poverty. And, uh, but I know lots and lots of blokes and girls who came from extraordinarily difficult backgrounds who never committed a criminal offence in their lives. Yeah. So coming back to that God-given choice, a lot of the people get empathetic and sympathetic and say, oh, well, you know, they're brought up in a difficult home and, mm. and their father was an alcoholic and their mother couldn't care less. And, 
And I, I, I understand that. There might be reasons for certain behaviours, but not excuses for rape and murder. Mm. So I, I realised that they made some very, very disgusting choices. I felt no compassion for them at all. And, you know, you might, you might say, oh, you're a good Christian, you know, aren't you supposed to empathise with people? And well, I suppose we are, but occasionally your feelings surface and see anyone who saw Anita's body, particularly after autopsy where a lot was revealed inside her body, you know, com- culminating to the uh, outside, then that you could see what atrocious things they did to that nurse. And I, I got angry and uh, I felt like giving them a mouthful uh, of abuse and ridicule and uh, put down talk. But what you've got to do as a detective is stay stoic and stay very, very focused on gathering evidence. So if you express yourself personally, they're likely to clam up or abuse your back and it becomes a, a verbal sort of a match and it, it escalates, could even become physical. Mm-hmm. So what? Yeah, yeah, you've got to withhold those emotions and you've got to, you've got to stay focused on getting the evidence from them. And sometimes that even means being friendly to them, you know, oh, you want another cup of coffee? Because what you're doing is trying to relax them with, with you because you want to find out everything that they know about what they did. Get it into evidence and then be able to convict them and jail them for, for life. And so police officers have got to internalise a lot of their personal emotions. Mm. And the thing is, too, that if we're out in the street at a road crash and we lose it and start yelling at people or abusing people or, you know, um, then, again, we're going to lose control and respect, whereas if you're calm and stoic but assertive, there's those three levels. There's aggressive, assertive and submissive, and we certainly shouldn't be the, the top the one and the one bottom. So you've got to be assertive. And so, but then what you do is one of the police officers, one of the detectives did, uh, when we were looking for them, we knew who they were and were hunting the Murphy uh, brothers, and we just missed them. We went to a place and they just left uh, about half an hour before. Yeah. We got back to the station and I was sitting in the mail room and I heard this thump, crash, thump, crash, thump, crash. What's that? I went into the locker room and one of my colleagues was punching the locker. One, two, punch, punch, and denting it and uh, making his knuckles very red. And I did what we call supportive lurking. (laughs) Supportive lurking is I stood beside him but I didn't say anything. I didn't interfere with him expressing his anger and frustration. And then he stopped and he looked around and he said, we missed the bastards. And I said to him, we'll get them, I promise you. Come and have a coffee. And he just broke into tears and he said, thanks, Gaz, we will get them. I said, we will, you watch. So he expressed his frustration and anger, but not against a person, but against a locker. Yeah. <laughs> and supportive lurking. I've never heard that before. I've seen it. I saw an amazing example of that. I went to a Victims of Crime event 
and a young woman got up to speak about her best friend who had lost her life in a domestic violence situation and, and it had happened not long before. And so as she tried to speak, she broke down. And all of a sudden from the crowd, it was only a small, pretty small crowd, and most of the people there were relatives of victims. George Helvargas stood up, whose daughter Messina Helvargas was murdered, and he went and just stood next to this young woman and he did not touch her or put his arm around her or any of those things that I would have expected. So he was doing supportive lurking. I've never heard that before. And she was able to just gather herself and, and continue on. It's a very important thing to do. It's um, supportive lurking is that you come within the presence of the person. You say you're there but you don't interrupt their thought processes or their emotional exhibition, if you like. And so it's a support. Now, when when they're ready, they'll turn around and start to talk to you, but you still just listen. Uh, we've got two ears and one mouth for good reason, and that is to be really good listeners and just let them vent. Uh, when I was an ambulance officer, now this is not a good example, but <laughs> when... Uh, if I had a patient in the back of the ambulance that we'd uh, got from an accident scene or a, a, someone who was collapsed, and they'd sometimes want to vomit. So I didn't say to them, don't you dare vomit in my nice clean ambulance, you know, or put my hand over an earth and vomit. I'd get the vomit bowl or, or whatever apparatus and put it under their chin and hold their forehead and encourage them to vomit, a matter of fact, because, I mean, all of us sometimes have been a bit nauseous, then we get it out and then we say, oh, I feel better now. That's what we've got to do. We've got to just listen to people vent their emotional vomitus and, uh, and, and to once they vent it out, then they feel a lot better emotionally because it's been exposed and not running around internally. So... Supportive lurking is, and I'll give you a good example if I may. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a lady who sadly and regrettably put petrol all over the double bed and her two kids put petrol all over them and lit it up. <clears throat> and they all lost their lives, as you can imagine. I was the duty inspector and uh, I attended the scene to begin the crime scene and uh, forensic management of the scene, the emergency management. Went around the back and the back wall was burnt out and you could see the three bodies on the bed. And there was a policewoman there taking notes and doing a crime scene sketch. And uh, I noticed that the pen was just poised on her notebook and she wasn't doing anything, just frozen. So I did supportive work and I came beside her and I just stood there. She was aware of me that I was there, kept in mind I'm my boss, and just waited. And after a while, she turned around and she said, Sir, I was just about to put in my notebook the mother and the two children. She said, I've crossed that out and I've put POI, which is police term for person of interest. She said, this effing bitch stopped being a mother when she lit up that bed. And uh, I, I just said to her, I said, look, I agree. She started to cry and she put her head on my shoulder. And I'll never forget it. The tears are dripping down my leather jacket, my police leather jacket between my, my metal ribbons. And so they got me soaking wet. And 
she pulled away and she said, sorry, sir, for crying on duty. And I looked at her and I smiled and said, permission granted to cry and do your crime scene sketch at the same time. So again, she cried. She said, thank you, sir. And then she continued to do the sketch. Now, I see her from time to time when I'm at police functions and reunions or when I'm training police officers, and she'll walk up, she'll get a notebook out, she'll open it up and show some blotches on it. She said, look, bloody tears on this statement or bloody tears on this sketch. And I say, good, you can do two at once. And she's never forgotten that. She's passed that on now to police officers saying you can get emotionally involved and grieve and do your job professionally and efficiently at the same time. Because you'd have to be worried about someone who who didn't, wouldn't you? You'd have to be worried about where that was going, where that emotion was going to be in such a confronting situation and not reacting emotionally at all. Some police officers are in their personality type uh, almost but not quite narcissistic. That is, they don't feel emotions at all. Okay. And uh, that's just their personality trait. Others are very emotional and cry at the drop of a hat. And what we say to them is, look, just be yourself. Yeah. Like, for example, we were involved in a shooting incident and I was doing a diffusing session with the team, including our special weapons team, and there was a sergeant up the back and he's got his, you know, mouth up like this sort of chewing, chewing gum, you know, <laughs> just, just staring at me. And I, you know what? I thought, any minute, Michelle, this guy is going to blow up and say, that's all shit what you're talking about, yeah, yeah, you know. And then we'd finish, but then we'd go for a coffee, so then they talk to each other. As he was walking out, he shouldered me and he said, thanks, Gaz, that helped me a great deal. So I'm not. We can't judge police officers, or anyone really, but police officers, you can't judge a book by its cover. There's a lot happening inside. And a lot of them are in a culture where sometimes it's not cool Mm. or not. uh, And see, remember when you're a kid, not you or I, but people, some people when they're a child, they started to cry or, or express whinging, if we call it. They get smacked and sent to their room. Mm. So when they grow up, they, they're not going to express their emotions with fear of punishment or ridicule or ostracisation. So a lot of them hold it in and some let it out. Also with police, we, put a, we project a lot onto them in terms of what we expect them to be and what kind of emotion we expect them to portray and this idea of strength and weakness in masculinity and all of those things I think are probably really playing on their minds a lot, don't you think, particularly with younger guys? Yeah, they're very aware. And I've found too it depends what team they're in or what station they're in. Mm. If they've got a a tough, non-feeling boss, they'll then uh, bunker down and uh, go into a siege mentality and they're not game enough to say anything Mm. uh, with fear of getting transferred or ridiculed or whatever. Another team or another station that's their bosses are really open and feeling for them and then it flows down through the team. So leadership is and supervision or mentoring is a big thing. And so we, as they go up through the ranks, we, we talk to them about how to relate to and listen to their staff, good communication techniques, 
not ridicule or, you know. But often you've got to be very directive and assertive. Like, for example, a, a young police man came up to me and he said, sir, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, sure. He said, you're like a Jekyll and Hyde. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, round the station, he said, you're friendly, you're, you're inquiring us about what we're doing and how we are. And out in the street today, he said, I thought you're a sergeant major on a parade ground. <laughs> I said, well, mate, you've got to have a role. When there's a, a crisis, I have to direct you. And I have to be very assertive and sometimes very directive and prescriptive. I said, but around the station, there's no need for that. I said, so I've got the ability to take on different roles when required. And he said, I'm going to develop that when I get promoted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And obviously you also had the genuine confidence to show your softer side around the station. Look, you're right too. And a lot of it's um, asking questions. The questioning technique is very interesting. For example, uh, I never use statements because statements can be torpedoes. Mm. They can hurt. Like if I said to a, a cop, you know, you're not looking real happy today, that's fairly confronting, isn't it? Yeah. But what I learned to do is I'd say, how are you feeling today, mate? What's on your mind today? And that questioning gives them a chance to then respond oh, I'm not feeling good, I didn't get much sleep last night because my baby was awake and screaming. And so then I'd say, well, do you want to just, you know, step aside for a while and have a rest or uh, do you want to go home? Uh, whereas statements don't give the invitation to respond. What do you think is going on with police right now in this lockdown situation when they have the same worries that I have the same stresses, the same fears, but at the same time they're being asked to go out in the community and tell people to go inside, ask them what they're doing at the beach. How does that feel for them, do you think? Firstly, on the stress scale, Michelle, the fear of death or serious injury is number one. The thing is, too, that when they're doing their policing, and when I was, you got a crook in front of you. You assess him or her and for weapons or what we call their level of resistance, their behaviour, uh, the threat to you, and you can then, but the virus is invisible. Yeah. You don't know where it is. And dealing with some of these people who are psychologically challenged, uh, that could spit at you, you know, bite you and, uh, and touch you. And so there's this constant threat. And there's the other thing is too that they're out putting themselves at risk and their family at home waiting for them to come home. Yeah. So if they get infected, then it's like firefighters uh, during the latest bushfires. They're out putting fires out in the buildings in town. Their own house is burning down. So the same as with the Anita Cobby, uh, these murderers and rapists and, you know, vicious people are out there. We're looking for them. And my wife was sitting at home alone. And I rang her a few times and said, leave the lights out, all the doors and windows locked, don't put the lights on, keep a lookout. You know, if you see anything suspicious, ring triple zero. And so I was out looking for these crooks and risking my life and she was at home alone. Thank you to patrons Anthony Hodgson, Cara Hoffen, Tracy Corden, Isabel Rose, Georgia Wardell and Catherine Ashland. After the break... Gary's experience in Sri Lanka after the 2006 Boxing Day tsunami. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. 
It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Gary Raymond talks about life after policing. But first... I know that Emily really wanted to talk to you about one case in particular, the Tess Debrinkat case. Yeah, there was um, a fellow across the road from the Debrinkats and he had um, a, a meat business and particularly to the greyhound trade and others, of course. But So he put some uh, refrigerated trailers, big trailers and containers, in, his, in and on his property and the motors were running all day and all night, this hum of the refrigeration, and there was no permission to do it from council. So the neighbours, both the Debrinkets and the Olsons, put in a complaint, and the council went out and told him, not only can you not run them, you can't have them on your property. And so he got very angry, and, uh, again, the allegation is, that he, which we found out, he paid uh, Glenn Besant and a couple of other blokes in heroin to go and shoot up the Olsons in the Debrinkets' house. So he got out of the car outside Debrinkets, ran up to the front door and fired blindly with a shotgun. One of the pellets went through the glass of the front door down the hallway and struck this little girl who was making a sandwich for school, straight in the eye, into the brain, and she dropped dead on the kitchen floor in front of her parents. They then got into the stolen car they had and they drove up around the corner and ran out of petrol. 
So Basant, the shooter, knocked on a door and said, oh, oh, look, we've run out of petrol. Can you just give us a bit to get us to the service station? So the bloke, uh, one of the neighbours there, gave him petrol and off they went. So the triple zero went out, of course, from the Debrinkets and we all, mm. you know, rushed lights and sirens, as you would imagine, to the area, to the house. And to see a little five-year-old dead on the kitchen floor, you know, with a sandwich on the breakfast bar and, then, you know, a, an empty knife there, um, butter knife, bread and butter knife, and the parents distraught just not knowing what happened. And it was the most tragic thing I think I've ever seen. It's well, we did a canvas of the neighbourhood. We spoke to the guy around the corner. He said, oh, these blokes stopped and we got an identification and so from the description and then some other information came in and we were able to arrest the uh, 9%, the shooter, and a fellow called Valanchik, the driver uh, from the stolen car and another bloke who sort of was involved too. So what was frustrating about that was we got some forensic evidence at um, Avard's place across the road. There was some... Uh, shotgun shells in a trailer out the front of his house and we matched those with the shotgun pellet that went into Tessa's brain. So we had that link. But Glenn Percent would not open his mouth and tell us about the arrangement with that art. And so to this day, because there's no direct evidence, we couldn't charge that art. Wow. So it's still waiting and we're hoping one day that Glenn Bassan tells us again and gives us a statement so we can take Adard to court. And again, it's only allegations against Adard at this stage, but we need Bassan to talk. But that's the error. Uh, on one occasion, we actually got to court and then he decided not to give evidence. And that's frustrating because you, you might have a statement, which we did, but you need someone to give evidence in front of a jury. And so that was uh, a very, very sad case, that one, and still remembered throughout the, you know, Quakers Hill, Blacktown area today. Definitely. So Bassett went down for murder for a couple of deals of heroin and won't talk out against Attard. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, and everyone knows in the, who was involved in the case, but you can't take someone to court without evidence beyond a doubt, a shadow of a doubt. No, what you allege you must prove, our friend Charlie Bazina always says. Yep, that's exactly right. Again, if I can harp on about your incredible career, the Hilton Hotel bombing, the Granville train disaster, Luna Park ghost train fire, Newcastle earthquake, Threadbow landslide disaster, Manly ferry collision, uh, John Newman's assassination, our first political assassination in Australia, hopefully our last. You're re- retired now from policing. Yeah, retired now, Michelle. Do you miss it? Absolutely, yeah. Look, <laughs> um, yeah, you do because it was so exhilarating. And firstly, you, you, the triple zero calls when I was in the rescue squad, uh, and it was very exhilarating because when all the other services were beyond their capacity and not so much their training but equipment, then they'd say, quick, get the rescue squad here. And so we'd turn up and, oh, thank God, police rescue's here. Mm. whatever the case may be, and we'd then 
get the person out of the car or get them back off the side of a cliff or caught in a machine in an industrial accident or buried in a trench or whatever it was. So that being needed and wanted was extremely satisfying. Yeah. And I guess when you when you leave that, uh, you're not needed or wanted in that regard anymore. And the second thing is uh, when you when you save someone's life, in, like I did in the Granville train disaster, and they legitimately saved their lives, then later on when they come and thank you, and us, you know, because of you, I'm having another birthday today, and I'm seeing my grandkids or kids or whatever. It's a great deal of satisfaction. It really is. Then I can imagine it's something I, I will never know. I can't, I can't imagine how satisfying. Again, the word satisfying doesn't seem like a big enough word. I was at, uh, one, uh, was it to Christmas Eve, uh, I was patrolling in Cabramatta and I heard screaming and yelling uh, just out the front of the railway station. And I was actually on the railway station platform itself. So I ran back out and a fellow had collapsed with a cardiac arrest. So being a former ambulance officer and rescue officer, I got straight down to CPR him and a couple of young police officers attended and the ambulance was on the way. We took it in turns doing CPR and uh, the ambulance paramedics turned up and then defibrillated him. Mm-hmm. took about three or four shocks, but finally they got a sinus rhythm. The heart was beating again and... Uh, his wife and daughter were standing there watching this whole thing. So he rushed him to Liverpool Hospital. They did some uh, stenting in, in his heart and uh, he was fighting fit, left hospital. And he came to the station and he asked at the front counter, he said, there's um, uh, the Chief Inspector Gary Raymond here, uh, he, he, he resuscitated me. And I said, oh, I'm not, not sure which... And they looked up the record and found it was me. And so they said, he's upstairs. So I came down and I said, okay, hello, I remember you. So I'd given him mouth-to-mouth and cardiac um, compressions. And he looked at me. He said, thank you for saving my life. And he cried and cried and cried. And, uh, and I cried and cried and cried. And I took him upstairs. We had a cup of tea. And uh, every year on that anniversary... I get either a phone call, a message or a card saying, thanks to you, my birthday today. Still and here. So I miss, I miss the, uh, but then I'm getting it in a different way now. I'm getting police officers and ambulance officers through suicide crisis, through critical incidents, post-traumatic stress. So when they give you a cut and say, thanks, chaplain, because of you, I'm, gonna, I'm okay. Yeah. So there's a different sort of satisfaction to what it was, but I do miss it. It was just amazing what we did. It is. It is amazing what police do every day, and I can understand missing it, even though for the rest of us it's like, oh, my God, I couldn't stand doing it for a day, but I can understand missing it when it's finished. And you were one of those Australians who were sent to assist in the tsunami response after the Boxing Day tsunami. I know a couple of forensic pathologists who went over to work there for months as well in various points around the region, and it was absolutely life-changing for them. What do you remember of that time? Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, Firstly, a great effort went into Indonesia. And in the meantime, the World uh, Health Organisation and Emergency Management said, Sri Lanka got hit by eight 
waves, eight tsunami waves, and they're devastated, but um, all the effort's gone in. So we went over to Sri Lanka and uh, there was just, well, 35,000 dead. Interesting too, I said to the police chief there, I said, have we got a hospital set up for those injured? And he said, no one was injured. He said, you either survived up on, the, on a hill or you were dead. That this middle road of injuries, like we see in most mass casualty situations, didn't exist. Having to recover the bodies out of mud and uh, the tsunami was very debris thick. It was mud and timber and tin and, and, and everything. So you had to dig debris and, and then finally find those who have lost their lives. I distinctly remember I, I was with some uh, Sri Lankan police officers uh, digging and I dug up a photo album and I washed it off and said, look, look, look what I found. And I said, the family would be so pleased to get this. And he said, Mr. Gaddy, throw it back in the mud. He said, all of the family have been killed. Because they're a fishing village, they're all living together, like we're scattered. Australian families, someone lives in the US, someone lives in Darwin, someone. But they stick, they're a fishing village. So the youngest baby, right up to grandfather or great-grandfather, all lived together. So when the tsunami came in, it wiped out that entire family, every generation. So it was sad. I just had to throw it back in the mud. I thought, how precious are photo albums when things happen with us? You know, like you retrieve something out of a fire or a flood or or, or, or whatever. And, you know, oh, look, look, photos. I got the photos. So that was significant. And uh, seeing the damage and uh, was sustained. When I went to the hospital, they had um, bodies, dead bodies, all over the floor and all the beds in the hospital. And uh, I said to the staff there, I said, look, and they're covered in mud. And uh, I said, look, I've got to get these bodies out of the hospital, clean the hospital for normal cases, you know, because like with the corona, you know, you've got the corona happening, but also you've got people uh, having heart attacks or falling over and breaking their wrist. So you've still got cases. So we got uh, the army in there and the police, we shifted all the bodies out onto the front lawn and uh, I said, well, we've got to try and identify them. So we hosed them all down and took notes of their clothing and their jewellery and, and I learned a big lesson. Two young blokes came and said, oh, oh there's my grandma. Can we take her bodies? Well, yeah, sure, of course you can. It's your grandma. Off they went. And we found the body again on the beach with all the jewellery gone. She had some gold jewellery on, jewelry on, and they threw, it on, threw a body on the beach. So then we had to then take notes of the jewellery, take the jewellery off the bodies and store it safely. And we made up a, like a DVI, Disaster Victim Identification Database, on a very basic computer, we photographed each body and then give, gave it a number and then matched the property with the number and so on. And uh, But there was very little claim of the body, so then we had to get machinery, dig a mass grave and, uh, and put the bodies in there because infections, as we see, is disastrous and, and other things. So, so that was amazing where... Um, oh, we can't have anyone to identify 
this lady because that's her husband, that's her father. And I went to one of the, I got called to one of the major police stations and I walked in, there was a superintendent sitting at his desk and he was very courteous to me and, you know, thank you for being here and joining us as fellow police officers. And, and he, he beckoned me to the window and he said, see those bodies there? There was about five bodies under sheets, white sheets. I said, yes, sir. He said, that's my family. He said, I was here at the office, they're at home, and the tsunami wiped out my home and I survived because I come in on Boxing Day to do some administration because it was a quiet day. And he said, Mr Raymond, would you and your team please bury them? I said, sir, we will. So we did that and then came back in and uh, he was crying. He said, close the door, and he was crying. He said, Please don't tell my troops, you know, my, my staff, that I was crying. I said, don't tell anyone you're crying. And I just cried myself. And then I just closed my eyes and I prayed for him. I just prayed for him because, you know, this man was broken. And here he is in charge of a huge contingent of police officers. Thank you so much to Gary Raymond for a very unexpected episode of Australian True Crime, but one that I enjoyed immensely and I think I really needed. Thank you for downloading and thank you to the following patrons, Lee Hansen, Russian K, Josie Merigildo, Jason J, Brett Polinus and Sarah Whitehouse. We'll be back with another episode next week and until then, stay well, stay home if you can and try not to go too crazy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.